gonna be weird yes hi i'm amy and i'm chris and, and we're, we're sonosphere you're listening to wyxr 91.7 on your fm dial Welcome to Sonosphere, the podcast that explores the sounds all around us in art and music movements through history. We're here on WYXR 91.7 FM every Monday at 4 p.m. And you can get the podcast monthly wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we discuss the first Black-owned recording company, Black Swan Records, which sold popular music to Black audiences. Its existence was brief, and it was only active for two years, from 1923 to 1925. During this time, however, the label released over 180 records, more than any other Black-owned record company until the 1950s. Today, we'll talk about the historical context in which the founder, Harry Pace, began and operated the label with mentor W.E.B. Du Bois, and how his partnership with Memphis blues man W.C. Handy kicked off Pace's interest in the music industry. Join us. We're your hosts. I'm Amy. And I'm Chris. We begin our story of Black Swan Records by setting the context of the times. Performers of recorded songs were becoming pop icons and American celebrities. By the end of World War I, recorded music began to take precedence over live performances as proof of musicianship. There is not a lot of information on Black Swan Records. We rely mostly on a website called Black Past and two dissertations by graduate students Stuart Lucas Tully from LSU and Jacqueline Brelethan from University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, as well as David Sussman's co-workers in the Kingdom of Culture, Black Swan Records, and the Political Economy of African American Music. We will cover the balance between popular versus classical music at the label through the context of the times in Harlem, when middle-class African-Americans were seeking to showcase talent and voice in the classical music and quote-unquote high art and culture, while distancing themselves from the Southern blues and gospel from the past. According to David Sussman, writing about the political economy of African-American music, Black Swan's burden was to chart a course between elite culture and popular music. Quote, Black Swan's burden was to chart a course between elite culture and popular culture, between the colorblindness of music and the racism of the music business, between ideologically based enterprise and the impinging realities of capitalist markets. David Sussman begins his article in the Journal of American History by saying, When music functions as a commodity, as it often does in American consumer culture, who makes it and on what terms are important questions of cultural and economic power. 
In the early 20th century, the manufacturers and merchants of printed music and musical instruments, including phonographs, grew rapidly in size and prestige, and tremendous sales of pianos, sheet music, and phonograph records established music as an essential component of the growing consumer economy and national mass culture. Sussman continues, quote, African Americans found their opportunities in the music industries tightly restricted. While phonograph manufacturers appealed to immigrant groups by issuing hundreds of titles in every language from Czech to Chinese, they all but refused to issue records by African Americans and paid no attention to African American consumers. When African Americans did make records, the recordings were limited to comedy or novelty styles, which established quote-unquote coon songs and minstrelsy as the paradigm of a African-American culture within the industry. Coon songs were a popular style of comic songs based on caricatures of Negro life, usually sung in a quote-unquote dialect. Despite the commercial success of numerous African-American songwriters, New York had only one significant music publishing company run by African-Americans, the Gotham Attics Music Publishing Company, before the late 1910s. And its modest, short-lived success may have depended on consumers' ignorance of its African-American ownership. In The Souls of Black Folk, in 1903, Du Bois argued that African Americans were ready to be a part of the mainstream economy, work in factory jobs, finance, and other industries, but many industries, including art and culture, did not hire black people. The Chicago Defender, in 1916, encouraged its readers to vote with their dollar and demand the music industry to hire black artists and singers, but white people still held the power across the recording industry. Lawsuits, expirations of patents, and court decisions ended the stranglehold big companies like Victor and the Columbia Graphophone Company had over the phonograph business, making it possible for new and independent labels to enter the market. New labels like OK Records began selling recordings by African-American vaudeville singer Mamie Smith. Those recordings from 1920 were made possible by the pressures of black people and specifically a campaign launched by the African-American songwriter and publisher Perry Bradford after lengthy discussions with Burt Williams, Rosamond Johnson, and Bill Bojangles Robinson, among others. Bradford recounted in his memoirs that he, quote, walked out two pairs of shoes and faced, quote, many insults and wisecracking recording engineers before securing an agreement with OK's Fred Hager. Hager had allegedly received letters threatening a boycott of OK products if he had, quote, any truck with colored girls in the recording field. But Bradford convinced Hager to take a chance on Mamie Smith. When the two records came out, they sold well among African Americans and heralded the possibility of a new era of African American music. Now we'll hear Mamie Smith's Crazy Blues, right here on WYXR.
This is WYXR FM Memphis 91.7, powered by the Crosstown Radio Partnership between Crosstown Concourse, the Daily Memphian, and the University of Memphis. Hear us online at wyxr.org, on TuneIn, or on your favorite assistant. Just ask for WYXR. Sonosphere is covering the rise and fall of the first black-owned record label in America at a time when Harlem and New York was buzzing in post-world industrial time. African Americans were rejuvenated in their fight for democracy at home. This environment led to attempts for black Americans to fight for a new existence with a new sense of identity. These were the years that Pace started Black Swan Records. Black Swan was not the first company to record African American artists, nor the first to advertise race records. But it was the first black owned and intentionally marketed to and for African Americans. All staff, like recording director and composer William Grant Still, and board members were black, including renowned individuals of the time like W.E.B. Du Bois, Dr. Godfrey Nurse, Dr. W.H. Willis, Viola Bibb, and Truman Cape Gibson, among others. While staff musicians like James P. Johnson made their solo debuts on Black Swan, it was Ethel Waters who made the label and others after her famous. We'll hear one of the first recordings by Black Swan Records' Ethel Waters' Down Home Blues, and then we'll return to our conversation about the rise and fall of Black Swan Records. Stay tuned right here to Sonosphere on WYXR 
tuned in to Sonosphere right here on WYXR 91.7 FM and on the web at WYXR.org. We're a nonprofit community radio station. Your monetary support and volunteer support will help us stay on the air. You can go to WYXR.org slash donate today to support the station. Today we are featuring the first black-owned record label in the U.S., Black Swan Records. The label was named after opera singer Elizabeth Taylor Greenfield, who was known as Black Swan. She was one of the first well-known black opera singers in the late 1800s. To learn more about Greenfield, check out our episode on the singer at our website, sonospherepodcast.com. Right now we are hearing James P. Johnson pianist who first recorded on Black Swan Records. Many later prominent jazz musicians like Joe Smith, Garvin Bushel, Don Redman, and Bud Aikens would find their start with Harry Pace's Black Swan label. Swan Records, Harry Pace, was born the son of a blacksmith in rural Covington, Georgia in 1884. Upon graduating from Atlanta University under W.E.B. Du Bois's mentorship in 1903, he accepted Du Bois's offer to become the business manager of the new Journal of African American Ideas and Culture. The magazine, which was based in Memphis, became Moon Illustrated Weekly and was the predecessor to the NAACP's paper called Crisis that served as Du Bois's main outlet from 1910 to 1934. It also initiated Pace into the business of cultural politics. When lack of funding forced the moon to close operations, Pace pursued ventures in education, politics, and the bedrock of African-American business, banking and insurance. While most inquiry in Harry Pace was about his time in the recording business, he actually spent most of his life working in insurance. It was his serendipitous move to Memphis to work for Solvent Solvings Bank in 1908 that led to his partnership and friendship with Memphis bluesman W.C. Handy. The musician, composer, and band leader was a customer of the bank and took a liking to Pace. According to Tully, the two began collaborating in 1907 and published their first song together in the cotton fields of Old Dixie the same year. While in Memphis, Pace became active in Republican politics. As Pace gained valuable experience in community-based business leadership, his involvement in race politics deepened. Later on, he and several other employees established Atlanta's first chapter of the NAACP, a particularly notable event during this period for most black-owned businesses, especially in the South. 
Pace served as Atlanta Chapter's first president, and this connection would help Pace grow his future business with Black Swan Record label almost a decade later. In a 1921 speech, Public Opinion and the Negro, Pace argued that, quote, unless we take hold vigorously of this matter of creating and shaping public opinion itself, all other efforts we may put forth in any line will be useless so far as our status among the races of the world is concerned, unquote. During Black Swan's first year, that speech may be taken as an expression of Pace's broad strategy. In 1912, Harry Pace and W.C. Handy became business partners, publishing sheet music as the Pace and Handy Music Company. The first hit for the new company was aptly named Memphis Blues, released in 1912. Written by Handy, the song launched the musician into national notoriety and became the company's greatest success. Handy followed Memphis Blues by composing Jogo Blues and The Girl You Never Met in 1913, and then St. Louis Blues in 1914. We'll hear St. Louis Blues now, right here on Sonosphere on WYXR 91.7 FM. Thank you. 
You're listening to Sonosphere on WYXR 91.7. We're listening to Yellow Dog Blues by W.C. Handy. As Handy and Pasek's success grew, they hired staff, including William Grant Still as head arranger and J. Russell Robinson as business manager. The burgeoning success of the Pace and Handy Music Company was not enough for Pace to devote himself full-time to the enterprise. But in the spring of 1912, Pace left Solvent Savings Bank following the death of Robert R. Church, the bank's owner and president. Later, the company relocated to New York City in 1918. The Pace and Handy Music Company had between 15 and 20 employees, including musician Fletcher Henderson, who joined the company in the spring of 1920. Handy and Pace constantly ran up against racism when trying to get songs published. Handy remembered recording managers refusing to issue records by black-owned publishers to deliberately sabotage the business. Recording companies turned down blues performed by white singers, but would also not run material by black artists. The goal was to employ more African-American singers, recording managers, and showcase the range black artists have beyond just blues. However, Pace and Handy continued to run up against discrimination. When Pace tried to persuade phonograph companies to record African Americans performing non-blues material, he was told that white prejudice made it commercially impossible. Company representatives, he said, claimed, quote, it would ruin their business to have a colored person making records of high-class music. Public reaction to Black Swan had two sides. Among African Americans, there was a lot of support and enthusiasm. Pace was inundated with letters from sales agents and admirers of the label. On the other hand, the label was met with hostility. Pace and Handy received threats of a boycott, boycotting the label and Handy's songs because they believed they had a formal connection to the record company. Opposition continued after Black Swan opened. More horrific, in September of 1922, a bomb was found in a coal shipment bound for the furnace in the company's manufacturing facilities. Pace and Handy were at the front lines of racial politics in the production and consumption of music and the music business. When publishing Mamie Smith's first record, they advertised to consumers in a way that showed they had power through what they purchased and that music could make a difference in by representing black voices in society and curb the appropriation of African-American culture by white voices. One message said, quote, Lovers of music everywhere and those who desire to help in any advance of the race should be sure to buy this record as encouragement to the manufacturers for their liberal policy and to encourage other manufacturers who may not believe that the race will buy records sung by its own singers. This style of activist advertising foreshadowed Pace's later promotions for Black Swan. It was not long after this, in 1920, when Pace dissolved his partnership with W.C. Handy and started his own enterprise, the Pace Phonograph Company, which would later become Black Swan Records, a label that exemplified Pace's commitment to black-owned business and his belief that music can be a driver of social change. All of Pace's experiences to this point, the time he spent with Du Bois, the contacts he'd cultivated in Atlanta, Memphis, and New York, his experience in banking and insurance, and his experience with Handy in the music business all came together for his new venture. 
In Stuart Lucas Tully's paper, he says, Pace is telling as to why he created the record company. Quote, He was upset by white record companies purchasing the rights to jazz and blues songs and then recording them with white artists. A 1919 advertisement for Pace and Handy Music Company supports Pace's position that white record companies were hesitant to employ black musicians. The ad lists the phonographs available based on the songs published by Pace and Handy. Of the nine records listed, only three were recorded by black artists. In having his own record company, Pace wanted to demonstrate that African Americans were capable of recording, producing, and financially supporting a record label without the involvement of white people. Du Bois's advice in starting the record company, and Du Bois found the idea compelling. It was Du Bois who suggested the name Black Swan for the record label. He chose the name to honor singer Elizabeth Taylor Greenfield, who was known as the Black Swan. Du Bois did more than come up with the name. He also, through his position at the NAACP, helped to advertise and advocate for the importance of the mission of Black Swan Records, and helped to incorporate the Pace Phonograph Company with an initial capital stock of $30,000 in 1921. The label started out small, housed in the basement of Pace's house at 257 West 138th Street. There, Pace began the process of inviting musicians and singers to record on the label, as well as locating suitable recording facilities. Finding a pressing plant for the records proved difficult, but he was able to strike up a deal with the Wisconsin Chair Company, who recently expanded to New York for its own labels, Paramount and Puritan. Wisconsin Chair Company got copies of Black Swan's Masters, and they pressed the records for the label. Black Swan Records released its first three records in May of 1921, starting with Ravella Hughes, At Dawning, written by Charles Wakefield Catman, and its B-side, Thank God for a Garden. The record was described as soprano with violin, cello, and piano. The second was For All Eternity and Dear Little Boy of Mine by Carol Clark, a baritone violin obligato. The final record was a blues novelty, Soprano with Orchestra, from Little Katie Crippen, which featured Blind Man Blues and Play em for Mama. The goal of recording serious music was not to devalue blues and ragtime, but to supplement the output with every genre of black music. From spirituals to secular music, the vast array of musical genres released by the label was compelling, and offered a glimpse into black music vernacular of the day. The label even released the first recorded version of the so-called Negro National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing. We'll now hear a few tunes, starting with Katie Crippen and then Carol Clark. So stay tuned right here to Sonosphere on WYXR 91.7 FM. (laughs) 
Train is proud to sponsor WYXR and its mission of supporting Memphis's musical legacy and future. Train has been offering commercial HVAC and energy solutions in Memphis and the Mid-South area for over 60 years. More information at train.com. Sonosphere here on WYXR 91.7. We are hearing a version of Charles Wakefield Cadman's At Dawning performed by David Wright. It was the first recording by Harry Pace on his new record label, Black Swan. Today on Sonosphere, we are featuring the beginning and end of the Black Swan record label, the first black-owned label in America. 
Harry Pace, its founder, was interested in uplifting black voices and black culture in the 1920s beyond the minstrel tunes, jazz, and blues. In 1921, Black Swan found its star in Ethel Waters. Waters, a blues singer from Chester, Pennsylvania, was singing around New York when she came across Pace. Pace enjoyed her sound and paid her $100 to record two songs. Her first record, Down Home Blues, was a hit. It was incredibly profitable for Black Swan. It sold 500,000 copies, according to Pace. While blues was not the focus of Black Swan's musical uplift, the musical style was not entirely at odds with the idea of uplift either. There was widespread concern in the post-war period about the respectability of African-American culture. A black swan ad in the Chicago Defender asserted that Ethel Waters, quote, changed the style of blues singing overnight and brought a finer interpretation of this work. She dignified the blues. Many African Americans still thought the blues to be profane or culturally backwards. Black Swan's promotion of the blues illustrates how such music had become fashionable. Hey, this is Amy with Sonosphere, and you're tuned in to WYXR 91.7. Friday, January 20th, 1922, Harlem held its first widely publicized blues contest at the Manhattan Casino, sponsored by a group of singers and entertainers from Harlem who had served in France during the war. Four contestants performed in elegant satin gowns with musical accompaniment from James P. Johnson, a master of the ragtime piano style known as Stride, then growing popular in Harlem. The competition was decided by audience applause. The declared newcomer, Trixie Smith, became the evening's champion. Black Swan signed Smith to a recording contract several days later, and by February, the company had released Smith's first two sides, Desperate Blues and her self-penned contest winner, Trixie's Blues. Due to Ethel Waters' success, Pace approved a nationwide tour. The tour was called the Black Swan Troubadours and included singing and comedy with an orchestra led by Fletcher Henderson. The tour started in October of 1921 and ended in July of 1922. While that first year made over $100,000, the cost to make records and tour was high. The profit, at just over $10,000, was not enough to repay stockholders and other startup costs. Delays and orders due to the slow pressing process didn't help. An optimistic pace banking on water's stardom pressed on. He struck a deal with white businessman John Fletcher to bring the pressing facilities closer to New York through the Olympic Disc Recording Company. Their joint venture called the Fletcher Recording Company purchased Olympic Disc Records on Long Island. 
Now with the capability to press 6,000 records a day, Pace moved all operations to the Long Island location. And as vice president of the venture, he had more control over streamlining the whole business. While there was much promise for the label, the purchase put financial strain on Pace. On top of this, Ethel Waters and other successful recording artists on Black Swan began recording with other labels, including white labels. And by 1923, there were more black blues artists recording on white labels than on Black Swan. beginning, Pace fought hard to get more black voices recorded at a time when white labels wouldn't hire them. But now that Pace proved the commercial success of black voices, the white labels jumped on the bandwagon. In order to keep up Pace, Black Swan began recording white artists using black names to keep with the label's persona of issuing records by black musicians. This controversial move became a sizable percentage of Black Swan's musical offerings by 1923. Black Swan was selling 7,000 records a day, and the pressing plant was behind. Pace, however, kept expanding by buying more equipment to increase production, hoping it would pay for itself. This may have worked if the introduction of radio hadn't taken over phonographs and popularity. Black Swan went from selling 7,000 records a day to only 1,000, and Pace had to close the factory two weeks at a time. Harry Pace gave ominous reports to his board and stockholders, but maintained optimism for the summer. However, by July of 1923, all record releases stopped, and by December, Black Swan was bankrupt. Pace was able to lease Black Swan's catalog to Paramount Records in 1924, but it was never profitable for Black Swan nor Paramount. The post-war boom of the 1920s was still in full swing, and the Harlem Renaissance was beginning to enter its peak right when Black Swan went bankrupt. According to Stuart Tully, artists such as Langston Hughes and others would come to exemplify the well-educated cosmopolitan Negro that Black Swan sought to promote through its records. Then the Great Depression brought an end to the Renaissance, and black industry was hit hard by the scale of the Depression, causing a decrease in black entrepreneurialism that would last through the late 1940s. Black Swan was indeed before its time. According to Tully, Pace was viewed as a key figure along with Du Bois in personifying black entrepreneurialism in the 20th century and beyond. Tuning in this week to Sonosphere here on WYXR 91.7. Today we will leave you with Ethel Waters and her tune, I Got Rhythm. So stay tuned to Sonosphere.
my man who could ask for anything more. I got daisies in green pastures. I got my man who could ask for anything more. Old man trouble, I don't mind him. You won't find him round my door. I got starlight, I got sweet dreams. I got my man who could ask for anything more, who could ask for anything more. Days can be sunny with never a sigh, don't need what money can buy. Birds in the tree sing their day full of song, why shouldn't we sing along? I'm chipper all the day, happy with my lot. Do I get that way? Look at what I've got. I got rhythm and I've got music. I got my man who could ask for anything more. I've got daisies, but they're in green pastures. I got my man who could ask for anything more. Old man trouble? Shucks, I don't mind him. You'll never find him round my door. I got starlight, and do I have sweet dreams? I got my man who could ask for anything more. In fact, who wants anything more? Once again, I'm simply 
This has been an independent production of Sonosphere, produced by Amy S. and Chris Williams. Check us out at sonospherepodcast.com. Subscribe on iTunes and check us out on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.